You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. If you haven't realized it yet during this series of sermons and messages throughout Hebrews, Jesus is supreme. Jesus satisfies. Jesus is better. And Jesus is all you and I need. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Children ages 2 through 4 and grades 4 through 5 may be dismissed. You may be seated. Yeah, and if it serves you, we have Redemption Hill Kids. For those who are in the service today, we have our sermon notes, our kids' sermon notes, right over there on the music stand. You can grab that. And per usual, you bring that up to me afterwards. We got a, you can pick from the uh, box of suckers that we have, lollipops. Well, it's good to see you all. As you can tell, we continue to plot along in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. I was really hopeful to get through Hebrews um, by the end of the year. I can't make that promise anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's okay. Um, there's just so much here, and I hope it's shaping your life, shaping how you read the Bible. I don't know how it doesn't. I, I think the book of Hebrews might be one of the most consequential books in the Bible for, for this reason. It shapes how you read the Bible. If you were to uh, get a dispensational Baptist and a covenant theology Presbyterian and a good Catholic and a good Eastern Orthodox priest and, you, and uh, you know, a pastor from XYZ Church down the road, and you get them all into the, to the same room, right? They're going to be debating, like, how do we interpret this particular book, right? Uh, there's just so much here, and it just shapes so much, which means it's been really important for us to slow down and look at the particulars of each chapter, and specifically chapters 7 
8, 9, and 10. A, a mixed crowd of people from various religious traditions are going to debate how to interpret these particular chapters for hours. For hours. And the primary question that's kind of on the table is this. How do we make sense of covenants? I introduced you to the term last week. And as, as I said last week, the theme of covenant hums in the background of the entire book of Hebrews. But then it puts a, a spotlight on the importance of covenants for several chapters. And that's kind of where we're at today. But here's what I want you to know. As your pastor, I'm going to preach to you to the best of my ability and tell you what I see in these particular chapters, what I think God is saying in these particular chapters. But I also want you to know that you may disagree with me, and that's cool. Like, don't get me wrong, like, I want to persuade. <laughs> uh, but I, I understand that there's a lot of debate around these particular chapters, so feel, feel free to, to disagree. Uh, this is a church where we think deeply, but also realize we can debate deeply as well. That's a good thing. Here's the big idea I want to convince you of this morning. Jesus is sovereign over all things because he is the great high priest who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Everything I just said at that point, most people are like, yes and amen. Jesus is the substance of the heavenly shadows on earth. And then finally, in heaven, Jesus ministers on our behalf so that Earth will look a little more like heaven. And maybe that's that last point people take some contention with or disagreement with. So Jesus is sovereign over all things. Jesus is the substance of the shadows, and I'll explain what that means here in a moment. And earth needs to look a little more like heaven. I want to show you how these particular truths are connected this morning. Hebrews 8, 1 to 6 helps us to see the relationship between heaven and earth. And between Christ, who sits on the throne, and his sovereign rule over the entire universe. And then I'm finally going to end just giving you some application. The application doesn't come directly out of the text, but it's there for us to think about, which, I'll, which is what I'll lead you with. So, let me pray, and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for your word. You have spoken, and you continue to speak to us this morning. I do pray that this particular passage would impact our mind, our heart, and our life. We do, just as Dean prayed earlier, I pray as well. Jesus is superior. He is our great high priest. And certainly there are implications when we, when we make such a declaration. So be with us this morning. I trust that in the power of the Spirit, you'll be at work in this room, in your church. Amen. One of the most significant theological tragedies, and this is actually kind of a big statement that I'm making, one of the most significant theological tragedies of our modern time is the dualism between heaven and earth. The dualism that has been created between heaven and earth. Now, I want to be careful. I don't want to turn this sermon into a history or theology class. <laughs> I want to be careful. Um, but dualism says that heaven and earth stand on the opposite sides of the Grand Canyon. They stare at each other, wondering what one has to do with the other. Heaven is the place where you go to when you die, and, and earth is just going to burn. 
It's just going to burn. Get the match, get the kerosene, get the gasoline, throw it, it's going to burn. Theological dualism says that we just need to get through this life unscathed, right? That's the goal. Just trying to get, get, get through life unscathed. So theological dualism creates a clear divide between earth and heaven. A consequence of the, this theological tragedy is that earth is treated like a rental apartment. You will eventually move out, and because you know you're going to move out, you might treat the apartment a little bit differently than your own home. Right? Don't worry about painting the entire apartment because you're eventually going to leave. Another consequence of dualism is the pessimistic view of the world. Right? It's very pessimistic. As I said, the mentality can be that the world is burning down all around us. So what is the point of fighting for change? What's the point? Dualism has resulted in a skewed view of heaven, I think. Heaven can be thought of completely and utterly different than earth. A caricature of heaven is, you know, clouds. You got the angel playing the harp, right? And, and streets that are just paved of gold. Theological dualism has told us that the shadow is entirely different from the substance. At least functionally distinct. But I think we see from the Bible, and in particular the book of Hebrews, the shadows show us some of the details of the substance. It's the details. It'd be like looking through a frosted piece of a window that's frosted, right? And it's frosted, and you, see, you can see a little bit of what's on the other side of the window. You can't make out all of the details, but you know a little bit of what's going on. But when you replace the frosted window with a transparent window, the details become really clear. The shadows of heaven, which we read about in the Bible, are constantly giving us clues about the substance of heaven with Christ as the center, with Christ as supreme. In other words, the chasm between heaven and earth is not as vast, I think, as it should be. Or as it actually is. I actually think there's a, a shorter bridge between the two. And I intend to show you the bridge this morning. Here's another word picture to make my point. Let's say you got one of those Venn diagrams. Right? You got two circles. Heaven, earth. There's this thought that heaven's way over here. And earth's way over here. And then when Jesus comes back, finally we got something different. One of the arguments I'll make is that we actually have some overlap to think through. I'm, I'm avoiding this dualistic approach. And it's one that I'm advocating today is that there is overlap between the things of heaven and the things of earth. Between the shadow and the substance. It seems like I keep taking you back to the garden. <laughs> I think if you've been tracking with us in Hebrews, it's like, all right, we're going back to Genesis again. We're going back to Exodus again. We're going back to Psalms again. Yes, absolutely. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, taking us back to the Old Testament. So let's go back to the garden one more time. Excluding the incarnation of Jesus Christ, I'm not sure there's a better example of heaven on earth than Eden. Think about it. 
Is there a better example of heaven on earth than Eden? Other than Christ himself? I don't think so. God created the world. And in his good world, God created a garden in the east where man and woman dwelled with God freely and with with the exception of one rule, unhindered. God even gave them responsibilities. They were to multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over the earth. You can think of Eden as the best possible picture of heaven on earth. But as you know, many of you know, Adam and Eve sinned. God can have nothing to do with with sin. So our first parents were, were kicked out of the garden. Sin does create a chasm between the things of earth and the things of heaven and with God and man. The destructive nature of sin is so evident that we read about the first murder in Genesis 4. It's like you turn the page after sin entered the world and you say, well, that's, that's the consequences. That's the chasm that surely does exist. Cain murders his brother Abel. And it was all downhill from there. Sin metastasizes on earth and spreads like a deadly disease. But because God is merciful, he spares humanity through Noah. Noah, as you know, creates an ark by following God's parameters, not his own. I don't have time to get into the details. Still, some of the parameters given to Noah symbolically follow the Garden of Eden. It's really fascinating. It symbolically follows the Garden of Eden, and it foreshadows the tabernacle, or what the book of Hebrews calls a tent. When you see the word tent in Hebrews 8, what should go through your mind is this idea of Old Testament tabernacle. So I don't want to get into the weeds, but what I want you to see is that God wanted Noah to preserve what God created and called good. Even though sin had built a canyon between God and man, God laid the path back to the garden the moment our first parents were kicked out of the garden. There are a few more examples of God dwelling with man in the Old Testament. In a real sense, it is... Moments of heaven kind of touching earth after the flood story. You know that the Lord walked with Abraham. The same goes for the time God spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. Of course, under Moses, God dwelt with his people through what what we also said, the tabernacle, and then later the temple under the reign of King Solomon. In all these situations, we see the substance and the shadow coming oh so closely aligned. We see the heavenly and the earthly as if they are one. As if they are one. Not there yet, but we see that God's up to something. He's up to something. The prophet Isaiah saw a vision in Isaiah 6. And the prophet Ezekiel had a vision. This is great. You go to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel has a vision. And where's he at in this vision? He's back in the garden. He's back in the garden. All of this does not suggest that heaven and earth are polar opposites. Heaven is not yet earth, and earth is not yet heaven. But I think the two are connected by that short bridge. The shadows of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant, pointed to the substance, Christ, who offers redemption through his blood. 
We see throughout Holy Scripture, God's redemptive plan to redeem and restore all things. That's what we see all throughout Holy Scripture. And we also, we also know that creation continues to groan for this complete restoration. Don't you feel that? Read with me Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, to futility, excuse me, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. We've talked a lot about hope as we've gone through Hebrews. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Even creation groans for final and ultimate redemption to get back to the time of the garden. Like we groan with creation. Because there is a short bridge between both sides of the chasm, we need to take a good look at how earth and heaven are actually different as well. Different in degree. We have an indicator of the difference in Hebrews 8, verses 3 to 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, we've talked a lot about, about this priestly nature these last few weeks, this priestly nature of Christ as it relates to Old Testament priests through the Levitical priesthood. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, verse 5 is critical. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Copy and shadow. A copy is, suppo is supposed to look the same as the original. A shadow of an item is directly related to the object that's creating the shadow. Don't disconnect the two. Theological dualism has done that. Heaven's a place I go to when I die. And everything's going to burn. I mean, everything might be burning. We have that perception. And I get that, right? But what do you think the saints of the first, second, and third century thought as they were being martyred? Was God's plan of redemption not at work? It certainly was. And we've seen since then the gospel spread to the nations, regardless of what our perception might be. From Hebrews 8, verses 3 to 5, the point is straightforward. Under the old covenant, the work of the priests and the sacrifices were all a shadow of something, or shall I say, someone greater. But note that the substance is not something altogether new from the shadow. Go back to the picture of the frosted window. Nothing changes on the other side of the window whether the frost is there or not. What changes is your clarity. That's what changes. Under the old covenant, sacrifices and the offering of gifts need to be made to appease the wrath of God. A system was implemented under the law that God's people could, where God's people could worship their creator. Under the new covenant, God offers his son as the gift to be sacrificed. That's just simply John 3.16. Think of it this way. The old covenant is like watching a, uh, a TV show in black and white. Like if you're 
younger than 30, you're just like, I've never, black and white TV existed? Yes, it did. So that would be like the shadow, right? Black and white TV. But then we get to the new covenant. And it's like, whoa, this thing's in color. It's an 80-inch uh, screen, and it's in HD. Like, that's a massive change. The author of Hebrews gives us an example of heaven on earth. Here's the rest of verse 5. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The instructions from God to Moses were to create that tabernacle where God could dwell with his people. Again, to a degree, it is heaven on earth. God dwelling through the tabernacle is a shadow of someone greater. Without comparing Jesus to another person, like we've seen Jesus compared to Moses, Joshua, right? and then got compared to the angels, the author of Hebrews is helping us once again to see that Jesus is indeed superior. In Christ, the realities of heaven are most clearly seen on earth. Let's go back to Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And we've talked about that in previous weeks, the promises of God that have been fulfilled through Christ. Under the new covenant, and by virtue of his sinless life, unjust death, and miraculous resurrection, it is now Christ who stands between you and God. I made much of this last week, and I won't belabor it right now, but we see why Jesus is our great high priest before a holy and just God. Now, some might say that the short bridge between heaven and earth is no longer needed because of Christ, who is the substance of the shadow that has come. I would say the bridge might be a little shorter, but we need to remember that Christ will come again. Christ will come again. Perhaps the overlap of the Venn diagram is a little more closely aligned. But until Christ comes, our Lord does reign at the right hand of the Father. I think an overlooked truth, very much an overlooked truth for Christians, is that Jesus is reigning as I speak and as you sit. Like, ponder that truth for a moment. Jesus Christ is reigning as I stand and as you sit over your life, over, his, over this entire universe. It's stunning when you think about it. And I think it's overlooked. We rightly talk about the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we must dwell more on what happened after Jesus rose from the dead, after he ascended. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, everything that was said in chapters 6 and 7, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Again, this is another example of seeing a shadow versus a substance, right? The instructions given to Moses, right? That was the shadow. That was a tent here on earth, a tabernacle here on earth. But now there's one, there's another one that's been set up in heaven where Jesus reigns, not set up by man, but by God. 
As our ancient creeds affirm, Jesus ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From there, he shall judge the living and the dead. And if you know the rest of that, and his kingdom will have no end. That's simply Apostles' Creed, second century. Jesus is ruling and reigning, but he did not sit down on his throne because the work was done. Jesus is ruling and reigning because the work was not done. He sat down and entrusted his church to continue the work that he started. He has authorized the church to show the nations the substance of Jesus Christ. The reason why I say earth looks a lot more like heaven than we think is because Christ has come. God sent the fullness of heaven into the world to redeem the world. Now the question might be asked, if Christ ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 8.1, does that mean Christ took heaven with him? Does that mean without the garden, the tabernacle, the temple, or Christ, we can no longer dwell with God? Are we back at having just shadows without the substance? The answer to, this, to these questions is fantastic. God now dwells with his church, the bride of Christ. He has tabernacled with his people. That language is so fascinating when you read John 1.14. He has tabernacled with his people. He is with us. I found this quote helpful. It's by a guy named Ephraim. He lived in the fourth century. You know, you know I love my early church fathers. And he said this regarding this particular section of Hebrews 8. Since they were in the darkness without a model, they managed their office according to their general affinity in divine matters. Divine matters. That is, all those ancient religious institutions were shadows and symbols of this institution of the church, which is established in its spirituality and divinity before him. It's interesting to me that he makes a direct correlation between the shadows of the Old Testament and the church of Christ in the New Testament. It's fascinating. God no longer dwells with man through a physical tabernacle or temple, but the substance of Christ is in his church. The church is indeed the temple of God, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. And anyone who has faith in Christ is a part of God's temple. It says in Hebrews 8 that Christ, while sitting at the right hand of the Father, does ministry on our behalf, the church. <laughs> How awesome is that? Like truly. Like it's one thing like as your pastor to minister as an under shepherd to the chief shepherd. And that's a privilege. But how much more of a privilege, how much greater is it for you to know that Jesus ministers on your behalf? That is, that should mean to you a whole lot more. Christ does ministry on our behalf so that the church might go about fulfilling the initial mandate given by God in the Garden of Eden. The church is to multiply and take dominion over God's creation. While the mandate to multiply is biological back in the garden, it's also now spiritual, right? The gospel, first promise back in Genesis 3.15. Like, that's when we first heard the gospel. Genesis 3.15. Not the New Testament. Genesis 3.15. Does everyone know what the first book of the Bible is? Genesis. That's when we heard the gospel. 
And it has spread all over the earth, and it continues to spread all over the earth by the power of the Spirit working through the church. As a result, we actually do not operate in shadows anymore by faith. We know the truth. Listen, even, even if I were to concede that dualism was a thing before Christ, right? Any notion that it is a present reality is wholly dismissed because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Further, the church is called the bride of Christ for a reason. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. The Holy Spirit, advocate, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, right? To be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept. Because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, Christian, because he resides in you and will be with you. Jesus says, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Indeed, we see in Hebrews, he ministers on our behalf. And then we read this in Ephesians 2, which is just more helpful words to get our mind around kind of the big picture of what's going on in the book of Hebrews. And then you you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You are that holy temple, church, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Under the new covenant, earth can look a lot more like heaven because Christ is working through his church. That is part of the prayer that the Lord taught us in Matthew 6. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice what it doesn't say. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done until Jesus returns. Now here's the question I asked myself, which I'll ask you. If, if everything I've said is accurate, let's say I'm in the ballpark, right? And Christ is currently sitting at the right hand of the Father. And Christ has endowed the church with the responsibilities until he returns. What are the implications of the shadows becoming substance? Like, What are those implications? What are the consequences? If those, if that's true. What are the consequences for you and me? Now, I've used several pictures to help, help uh, show you the relationship between, you know, earth and heaven. What are the implications of a short bridge between both sides? What are the implications of seeing the Venn diagram aligning a little closer than we might have realized? What are the implications of having no frost on the window? If the prayer is for earth to look more like heaven, then we have an active role as ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20, to see the things of heaven spread throughout the earth while Jesus ministers on our behalf. The temptation for Christians is just to be very passive. Someone else will do that thing. Um, that church is doing a good job in that area. I don't need to worry myself with that. And the answer is no. Christians are called to be active as Christ ministers. The church is called to be active as Christ ministers on our behalf. Here are two broad categories 
that Christians can operate out of as we help others see that the substance is Jesus Christ. Number one, and I think I put this on the screen behind me, we proclaim a spiritual message that has practical implications. That is so true. We proclaim a spiritual message that has practical implications. Number two, we also take to heart that the compassion and justice of God are what we pursue in our homes, in our churches, in our communities. It doesn't come directly out of Hebrews 8, and I can see that, but I want to make an application point that can come from that. Let me break down these two broad ideas. The gospel of Jesus Christ takes broken people and makes them whole. If you are a son or daughter of the Most High God, you are a living testimony of that truth. The gospel takes broken people and begins to make them whole, right? It's that piece of china glass that gets thrown on the ground. God takes those pieces up and he begins to put those pieces back together. The change results in a person aligning their life with God's design, intentions, and standards. Sin results in brokenness, but repentance is the path toward becoming whole. Earth looks a lot more like heaven as the gospel continues to spread. The church also looks to God's word to apply compassion and justice to the world. I use those two particular words, compassion and justice, because they're shot through the entire Old Testament and New Testament in terms of connecting it directly back to God's character being worked out on earth. Living in a world of substance means living out, for example, James 1.27. Here's what compassion can look like in real life. Religion that is pure, James says, and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There are other passages we can draw from. That's a great one to point to, right? We know that compassion and justice are also closely linked. Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the, to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Heaven on earth is pursuing justice for women and children who are being trafficked all over the world. You want to see heaven look more like earth? We pursue justice in that arena, for example. Heaven on earth is standing up for the unborn. Heaven on earth is to reach fathers with the gospel so they don't abandon the mother and the child. Because statistics are showing us the fatherless rate in the home is absurd. Heaven on earth is walking with a single mom who's just trying to survive life and raise children. Heaven on earth is to come alongside a young man and a young woman who have been deceived by the LGBTQ plus agenda and to show them true love and the truth and the healing power of the gospel. That's what heaven on earth looks like. It's reaching them specifically right now in this generation. Heaven on earth is weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. Heaven on earth fulfills the greatest commandment. Y'all know, love God. And what else? Love your neighbor. That's heaven becoming a little more, that's earth becoming a little more like heaven. And the list goes on. Like I can give you all a piece of paper and you can start adding to that list. A lot of implications. One final implication of living in the reality of the substance, right? Christ has come. We live a bit differently because we have a hope in the present. The kingdom is not only at hand, but this is where some people would disagree, but in my opinion, it is here. We'll eventually get to Hebrews 12, but I find this passage extremely compelling. Therefore, 
Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We have received the kingdom. This is how we know we've gone from shadow to substance. The kingdom is here, it says in Hebrews 12. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. In the present, we worship God, right? The idea that God is a consuming fire is, is a reference actually to Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 9. It is meant to keep us from idolatry, idolatry and to spur us on toward reverence and awe of who God is and all that he's done. If you hold, I'm suggesting, to theological dualism, it is hard to have hope in the present. It's really hard. You can have hope for the future, sure, right? Get that, Jesus, we all agree. Jesus is coming back. I can have hope in that. But we can have hope in the present. Theological dualism would say hope is fleeting in the present. And I would argue someone holding on to theological dualism is clinging to the shadows of the old covenant. They say the kingdom of God is not at hand, but is indeed still far off. The bridge between both sides is like a mile long or miles long. However, if the incarnation of Jesus Christ has ushered in the kingdom of God and the cross and the resurrection solidify that kingdom that it is here, well, that's a game changer all of a sudden. That changes how we live right now as Jesus ministers on our behalf. We have so much to live for because we live for God while, we're, while we are here on earth. You're all living for something. The question is what and who? Young folks, even you're living for something. The question is, who are you living for while you're here on earth? This, is a bit of a, this has been a bit of a biblical theology lesson, I know. And I feel like because it's, the sermon kind of turned out that way, I need to end in the last book of the Bible. Started in you know, kind of Genesis, kind of walk through other passages in Holy Scripture. Let me end with this. Where we see the day when heaven and earth are perfectly aligned. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first time, for the first heaven, excuse me, and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's when the Venn diagram is perfect overlap between the two. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, 
I will give from the spring of, of the water of life without payment. Again, that's a reference back to the garden. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. So yeah, do we have a lot to look forward to in the present as Christ ministers on our behalf? <laughs> Absolutely. And we rejoice and praise God. The shadow has been made clear with substance and we look forward to that day when all things will be made new. No more crying, no more death, no more pain, no more disease, no more sin. Do you look forward to that day? I do. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.